All right, Jeff, that's enough community back there. Stop being relational. If you're looking for a seat, we've got some up front in the spitting section. So we will baptize you ahead of time. Um, so my name is Eric. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm so grateful that you're here. Some of you are visiting. Um, and we have been in a series that we have been calling Brand New. And this series is one in which we've been looking at this brand new kingdom ethic that Jesus came to inaugurate. It was an ethic that basically summed up all of the law, all of the, um, the rules, all of the regulations into two really easy to remember postures or commands. Love the Lord your God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And then as we talked about last week, it became even more simple than that because Jesus said the way that we love our Father God is by loving the people around us. The way that we can authenticate and demonstrate our love for Him is by the way we treat the people around us and not just the people who look like us, think like us, vote like us, live like us, but anybody that we come into contact with. And the more difficult they are to love, the more it honors our Father God. And so this is the heart of what we've been unpacking. And it's way more simple, although it is far more demanding. And so you would think that that would probably take, take hold. However, what we see throughout history is that time and time again, people keep gravitating back towards the rules. We keep gravitating back towards the law. And, and I was thinking about it, like, why do we do that? Why do we try to complicate something that Jesus made so much less complicated? And the reason is, be, at least part of it is, because the rules are cold and dead and, and, and impersonal. You draw a line and you say, don't cross this line. Well, I can always get up as close as I can to the edge without falling off and I still haven't broken the rules. So yeah, yeah, I know that the Bible says not to commit adultery. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that I can't appreciate every other woman that God has created in his image, right? Or I know that the Bible says don't murder and that's fine. We good? Amen. You owe me dinner. <laughs> I owe you dinner. Okay, thank you. Um, so we, we, you, you, can, you could, on the other hand, give just 1% of what you make and be free from the burden of greed because you give with joy and, and, and you give with all of your heart. The rules are all about the external. In fact, Stephen and I were talking earlier this morning. Yeah, I know. I'm going to call you out right now. We were talking before the service started. And he said, you know, Eric, I figured it out. I go, what would you figure out? That question I asked you last week. And I'm going, that question you asked. And he's like, remember about what's the difference between legalism and following Jesus? And I go, yeah, what would you figure out? He said, legalism, you do it because you have to. Following Jesus, you do it because you get to. I go, that is true. Why, do, why are people going to get baptized next week? If you're doing it because you have to, that's fear-based. That's temple model thinking. But if you're doing it because you get to, because you love him so stinking much, and he's invited you into relationship, so all you want to do is proclaim it. That is getting to. And that's the brand new ethic that Jesus was inaugurating and inviting us into. So Jesus was not coming to inaugurate Temple 2.0. It wasn't just a continuation of this thing that said places are sacred. He said, no, 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 people are sacred. And the people sitting next to you and the people out there that would never think of stepping foot in here are far more valuable and far more sacred to our Father God than any building or any plot of ground ever could be. 
And it's not just, it's not just the special people who have gone to school and who can read the Bible in their original languages. Every man, woman, and child who has the breath of life in them has been created in his image, and every single person is sacred. Jesus said, the temple model may have said that animal sacrifice is necessary, but no, 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 it's not about animal sacrifice. It's about personal sacrifice. The temple model says it's all about following the rules. He said, no, 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 it's all about loving because the rules were meant to help move people into relationship with God and help maintain their relationship with their neighbors. And the other thing, and this is what we're going to focus on today, is that in inaugurating this brand new thing, Jesus flipped the paradigm or the power structure of the temple model on its head. Because as we've seen, the temple model said it's the people who reside in those sacred places who have access to the sacred texts and can tell all of the sincere followers how they're supposed to live. They're the ones with the power because they're the spiritual middleman that, st- that stand between God and the people who want to love God. They're the ones who say, this is how you do it. This is how you live. And for far too long, that paradigm, that that power structure has existed within religious expressions throughout the world, not just Christianity, not just Catholicism, but Islam, and, and even some of these mud hut religions out in Africa. It is in all of these places, there's this power structure that takes place. And Jesus said, but that's not how it works. Because power is not intended to be used for those in authority, in power, to use it for their own well-being at the sacrifice of or on the shoulders of those they lead. It's just the opposite. If you lead, you are a servant. And so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of background here before we dive in. Jesus is in the middle of his ministry as you're turning there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to take one of those or let us know and we'll get you one that's a little bit more of a study Bible. We'd be happy to do that. But as Jesus is walking along with his disciples, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And I want you to understand what's going on with them because at this point in his ministry... Jesus has become very popular with a lot of the people he's ministering to, but there's a group of people specifically he's very unpopular with, and that's the religious elite. And it makes sense, because when you begin to poke holes in a religious hierarchy, when you begin to upset the balance of their status quo, it's the people who have the most to lose that are going to get the most upset. And so it was the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these religious elite, that were having a really difficult time with what Jesus was doing. And they were looking for any excuse to shut him up and shut him down. And so it makes sense then that as he's walking in, in verse 32, his disciples and the people following him weren't too excited. We read that when they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the the disciples were astonished, like, is he seriously going to Jerusalem right now? They're looking to kill him. What's he thinking? And, the, and those who were following were naturally, understandably, afraid, like, this is not going to end well. And so Jesus, sensing that this is going on with his retinue, pulls the e-brake and says, everybody come over here. And they gather up underneath a tree, and they sit down. And he goes, listen, I've got to explain something to you. Yes, we're going to Jerusalem. And yes, this is going to get messy. It's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to get beaten, I'm going to be mocked, and you're going to see me die, but do not worry, because it's not going to get the last word. I mean, if he could have been, I don't know that he could have been more clear with what was coming, 
Understandably, they did not get it. They couldn't see it. It didn't work into their paradigm. But Jesus tried to warn them, this is coming, so get ready. They keep walking. And I love the humanity that I see in the disciples because this is the very next thing that we read about happening. Then James and John, as they're walking along, come up to Jesus. Hey, hey, Jesus, can we talk to you for a second? Yeah, what's going on? So, to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, are you seven? Like, are we playing this game where you just have a secret thing you want and, and, and you're just going to... So Jesus is, goes, all right, well, what do you want? Okay, we want to sit at your right and your left hand when you come into your glory. doesn't matter which one. You know, James on one side, John on the other, John over here, James. We don't care so long as we are in those positions of, of, of authority and influence because we know people are going to be worshiping you and celebrating you. We just want to sit really close to you so people see us too. Is that cool? I see Jesus face palming at this point. Like, seriously, do you not get this? And so he tries to kind of talk them down from this. Do you guys realize what you're asking? Did you not just hear me tell you that I'm about to suffer greatly for this? Do you think you can walk this same broken road that I'm about to walk? Do you think you can drink down to its dregs the cup of wrath that I'm about to empty? Do you think you can be baptized with the baptism of blood that I'm about to endure? Oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, we can follow you wherever you go. We're following you now. Guys, you're right. You're going, you're going to experience that. You are going to experience persecution. You are going to be baptized in blood. But for me to give you the right and the left hand, that's not for me to offer. Those places have already been prepared. And he shuts them down. This is a small group of people. No doubt some of the other disciples overheard this because when they found out what James and John had asked, they became irate. Mark says it this way. When the, ten, the other ten disciples heard about what James and John had asked, they became indignant with James. Can you believe what James and John asked Jesus? Seriously? How, how selfish can they be? And internally they're thinking, Dang it, why didn't I think of that? Well, I guess it's probably a good thing I didn't because the way that Jesus shut them down, I'm better them than me, right? But inside of each of them was this desire to be central. And so Jesus, once again, recognizing that the perspective of his own disciples who have been walking with him for a few years now has been so utterly shaped by the thinking of the world around them that once again he pulls the e-brake, he pulls everybody over, gathers them up, and explains to them what, what leadership in the kingdom of heaven looks like and how different it is from leadership within the rest of the world. And so he says to them, listen guys, verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that their high officials exercise authority over them. And, and, and the disciples are going, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what authority is. Power equals influence. The more power I have, the more influence I have. And Jesus, we were kind of following you in the hopes that as your star rises, ours will too. Isn't that how this works? And Jesus continues on in verse 43. Not so with you. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and how they use authority to benefit themselves, but not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And if that wasn't clear enough, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Slaves were not considered very high in this society. Jesus is flipping the power structure and saying, if you want to be great, then wash some feet. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man, this is a term that Jesus used for himself, because terms like Messiah and Christ were so laden with expectation in that society that to use them would have brought with them a slew of unnecessary baggage. And so instead he uses a term found from Daniel, the Son of Man. He says, even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, I'm sorry, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus says to them, listen, guys, you got it totally backwards. You are hoping that as my star rises, your star will rise, that you will grow in influence. And he knows that these are the very guys who are going to become the foundation of this fledgling church that he's establishing. He knows that their responsibility will rise. But he looks at them and says, but you can't approach the leadership and the influence that you're about to gain as the rest of the world does. Because the rest of the world uses that influence and leadership to make other people submit to them. And he says, instead, if you're going to lead other people, if you're going to have influence, then you must use that to benefit the people around you and to submit your needs and your desires and your comfort and even your own safety, even your own life to the people that you're leading. Now, there's a lot of people. Let's talk for a moment about the church since this whole series has been about kind of unpacking the dynamic of the church and asking this question, why on earth has this beautiful movement that Jesus inaugurated 2,000 years ago become so utterly and I would suggest unnecessarily resistible. And one of the reasons is because people gravitate towards the church and people long to climb the ladder in some instances within the church because the higher you go, the more influence you have and the more power you have. And I think that Jesus would look at us and go, not so with you. And by the way, I'm pointing at myself right now because I recognize that if there's anybody who needs to hear this, it's me. Because within the church, the tendency is to say the person on the stage is the most important person. And Jesus would say, ah, you got it backwards. The person on the stage does not just get to have his way. My job is to be the lead servant in this place. My job is to model for the rest of our church what it looks like. And if there's one thing I've learned in the five months that I have been in the lead role is that if this is not easier than the associate role that I was in before. That the higher I go, it does not become easier. If anything, it becomes more difficult because suddenly I can no longer simply think about my job. I can no longer simply think about my responsibilities. I have to concern myself with the responsibilities of my entire staff and all of the people that they are leading. The higher you go, the more people you have to serve. And so... It used to be that I could close my door and for a good portion of the week I could just get my stuff done. Now, sometimes I do close my door so I can get through a message. I can stay focused on it because I'm like a crock pot and every time you open that thing up, you're letting some of the, you know, the, the pressure go. But every time that there is a knock on the door, my staff knows it's important 
And I know it's important, so it's like, come in. Because I may be busy, but I always try to adopt a posture of being interruptible. And every time I walk down the hallway, there's somebody who needs me to step into their office and help them process through something. And that is not to suggest that I do not have a capable, competent staff. I have a tremendously competent staff. But my job is to help them so that their burdens become lighter. And there are some times I need to step in and help them process through what they need. There are some times that they just need the, hey, A-OK, go for it. There are some times that they're not doing all that great. And when I notice that, even though I have a lot of things going on, I need to be willing as the lead servant in this church to stop and enter into what's going on and help process through that with them. Not because it's in my job description. Not because there is a rule about it. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Because I have the margin to do so. And because Jesus modeled it for me. And if I hope to see that same posture percolate through the rest of this church, it has to begin here. You see, servant leaders recognize that the higher they go, the more people they have to serve. And servant leaders recognize it's not about their needs being met. It's about submitting their needs and their desires to, the, to what is most important for the unified team. And this is not to suggest that the leaders are the only ones who serve. Far from it. We all know that the people in, 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 a little bit lower on the org chart all serve. Every single one of them submits their desires to what is important to the rest of the church. That's expected. So it's not, it's not saying anything to say, well, submit to the direction of the church. Submit to your leadership. Submit to the people around you because you're already doing it. It's the people at the top that need to be reminded, but you need to submit as well. Does this make sense? Could you imagine how the church would change if we stopped turning it into power struggles? If we stopped creating our own little fiefdoms where we we carve out some position of influence and then use that influence to get our own way. If we would stop looking at the money that we give as a fulcrum through which to get something done that we want to see done. If we would stop fighting And I'm not speaking about here. Thankfully, I have not heard this in a very long time within a church that I've been a part of. But if if the church would stop fighting about how it used to be, we have people in here who have been a part of this church longer than I've been alive. And this church has seen some changes. Worship styles have changed. And I have seen churches torn apart because one generation does not like the worship music of the next generation. And they say, nope, it's got to be you know, choir robes and organs and all these things, and they put their foot down and say, unless you do this, I will not support this, and I will leave. And in that process, the church becomes about keeping people as opposed to reaching people. And what if we said, you know what, it's not about what I want, it's not about my preferences, it's about what is best for the unified whole, and it's best about what is about the people in the Avalon Apartments right over here. And the people all around us that have not yet stepped foot into church, this is about reaching them. Because we're all fine. But there are people who are dying without hope beyond the walls of this church, and that is who we exist for. Okay. So if you are, if you are leading, it means you are the lead servant. 
doesn't mean that you get to have all the control and you get to have your way and it's more comfortable. If anything, it's less comfortable because there's a whole lot more work. But this does not simply speak to how we do church. This also speaks to every other relationship. The, the Apostle Paul understood this. And if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 because this is one of my favorite and one of my least favorite passages in all of Scripture. Favorite because it is so utterly necessary for us to hear it. Least favorite because it hits me right between the eyes and right in the heart. And it forces me to live contrary to the way that my flesh would like to live. In Ephesians 5, Paul is in the process of speaking to a group of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. It's, it's a city that was Roman run. It, it's mainly made up of Gentiles, so there's a smattering of Jews there as well. And, and to the people who are loving Jesus there, he's explaining to them how they can live as children of the light into that community. And so at the beginning of Ephesians 5, just to kind of take a running start into the passage we're going to actually look at this morning. In verse 1, he says, follow God's example. Uh, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He goes on to explain how they can live as children of the light, you know, run towards things that unify, run away from the things that distract and from from living in such a way that it would get in the way of your witness. And then he, in, in the midst of that conversation of how we can live as children of the light, he comes to the three greatest power source struggles in that community. Between husband and wife, between parents and children, and between masters and slaves. Just to give you a little bit of cultural background here. In that culture, men held the power of life and death over their entire household. A man could divorce his wife, or beat her with impunity. He could disown his children for any reason at any age, just say, you're no longer my child, done. He could kill a slave with no recourse. This was the social structure into which Paul is writing. This is the social structure that he is addressing. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And the husbands who are not wise say amen. And for decades and centuries, there have been men who have used those verses as a cudgel to demand their wives to submit. Beaten their wives into submission using the Bible. The Bible says, and this is one of the only places where they point to Scripture and say, see, I'm in charge. I think Paul would be shaking his head and he'd be face palming in that point because we have missed the point completely. And in fact, we have completely misinterpreted that passage if that is the reading that we take from it. In fact, most of the translations of the Bible into English, do a really poor job of getting to the heart of this because they actually start that sentence in verse 22, wives, as if that's the beginning of the sentence, and it's not. Some of your Bibles may actually have a chapter break and there's a new section right there, and if so, they have done you a disservice in this very, very important topic. 
Because the sentence actually begins in verse 21. And if we start reading in verse 22, we will have completely missed the whole point of the next chapter and a half. Verse 21 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, who is being spoken to here? Everyone. Not just wives? Not just wives. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And then verse 22 where we say, see wives submit to your husbands. The word submit is not even in that sentence. It's not even in that section. It's borrowed from verse 21. So you can't even understand what verse 22 means if it's not part of the same sentence. Here's how it would better be read. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives to your husbands is under the Lord for the husband is the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. Read that way, we begin to understand what Paul's doing. He is pointing to a culture in which wives already naturally submit and he's using them as an example of what this submission to one another looks like. Because in this culture, women were raised to be submissive in everything. They didn't step out of line or the husband could divorce them with nothing. And he's saying, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is what this looks like. Wives, submit to your husbands because they're the head of the home. But husbands, in the same breath, he goes on. In verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Well, how do I love my wife? Just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. How did Christ show his love for the church? He bled out on a cross. He died, and it's not because he wanted to. Jesus was no masochist. It's the, the, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture is that, that evening that Jesus knows he's about to be arrested and he's in Gethsemane on his knees begging God, God, if there's any way that we can do this that doesn't require me to die a bloody, gruesome death on a cross, can we please do that instead? Because I don't want to hurt. I don't want to do this. But whatever you want, if this is the only way that we can break the grip of sin on you, on your kids' hearts, then fine, so be it. I submit to you because your will and not mine should be the one that's being done. So whatever you want, we'll do it that way. And Jesus willingly walked to the cross, not because he wanted to, but because he chose to submit his own comfort, his own well-being, his own safety to what was best for us. And Paul says, and in the same way, husbands, love your wives in the same sacrificial manner. And I tell you that I hate this passage because I cannot tell you how many times in my own marriage when Kathy and I are in the middle of a discussion, a clarification, that's our code word for a fight, um, when I'm being pig-headed and she is being not pig-headed but, you know, something similar that it's not as, you know. So as when we're just butting heads and the last thing I want to do is humble myself to my wife and apologize. Ephesians 5 reminds me as the head of my household. And head does not mean leader in the sense of the world's idea of leadership, where the leader gets his way, the leader gets all of the say. No, no, no. Headship is like a team captain. Remember, in the the garden, when Adam and Eve both ate the fruit, Eve may have eaten it first. But when God shows up on the scene and they're obviously hiding, who does he call out? Adam, what have you guys done? He's the one who represents the whole. And so headship simply means 
the lead model for whatever heartbeat is going to kind of translate through that marriage. So if I want to see her apologize for her stuff, if I want to see humility in my family, if I want to see unity in my family, then it starts with me. And so I can't tell you how many times we've been in the middle of a fight and I have had to scrape together the humility and there's not a whole lot there when I'm angry. To scrape together the humility to go and apologize to Kathy even if she does not reciprocate in that time. Because I need to lead the way that I want to see that heartbeat play out throughout my marriage. And the same thing with my kids. I can't tell you how many times I've apologized to my kids for being pig-headed and for being angry and for snapping, doing the very things that I would have gotten on them about. Leadership means humbly modeling the lifestyle we want to see played out in our home. Now, in a culture in which women are raised to be submissive in everything, which party, husband or wife, is going to have the most difficulty embracing the heart of what Paul is saying in this section? The husbands, bar none. Women are already doing it. The husbands are going, excuse me? I'm supposed to submit to her? Yes, you are. And ladies... If your husband's adopted this sort of self-sacrificial heart that says, I'm willing to put my needs below what's best for the family, and that does not mean, by the way, before I, before I ask this question, that does not mean that you never get to go play golf. Because I cannot tell you how many times I'm in counseling with a couple and I remind the guy, I go, wait a minute, you are called to lead your family and to care for your family. Is this true? Yes, this is true. Well, you're a part of your family too. So that means you need to take care of yourself because if there's nothing left of you, there's nothing left for you to give out of. And you're going to start hurting your family unintentionally because you're at your ragged edge and they're going to get the brunt of it. So you need to take care of yourself. Sometimes that means the most loving thing you can do for your family is to allow yourself to take a nap, to take a break. And ladies, I would suggest you remember that because that's for you to hold for them as well, to remind them it's okay to take a break. But husbands... If we could just embrace the posture of leadership within our family, headship within our family means we are the first ones to bend a knee, the first ones to say what needs to be done, I will do it. Ladies, do you think that would be easier or harder to submit to your husbands? Way easier. Paul doesn't stop here though. After talking through husband and wife dynamic, he then in chapter 6 moves on to parents and children. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it will go well for you in the land you're about to inherit. And Paul is not saying anything revolutionary here. Kids already submit to their parents. It's what they do. And in that society, especially when a parent held the power to disown you, you better believe submission was taking place. What is truly revolutionary in his words comes in Verse 4, and fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And now he points to the parents, in particular to the fathers, and he says, don't just ride your kids and try to beat them into your image. The goal here is to help mold and shape them. Discipline is not specifically and and, and primarily punitive. Discipline 
is intended to help be productive in shaping somebody into the image that God has created them to be, rather than beating them into kind of a, a reflection of yourself. The world already got you, so let them be them. And what was revolutionary in his words is that he would actually call the parents to think about their children's heart and their children's feelings in this. Don't just make them frustrated that they can never live up to your expectations. Don't discourage them. Don't crush their spirit. Help mold and shape them into who God intended them to be. And then finally, he looks at the last of those big three power structures between masters and slaves. And of course, like he's done each time, he starts with the one that in society already submits. So he starts with slaves. Slaves. And we might say for us, those of you who work for somebody else, those of you who are an employee, who don't really feel all that important on the totem pole, maybe almost feel like you're just a cog in a machine, you could be replaced in a heartbeat. Slaves. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And that word fear there is reverence. With sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Remember, you're not slaves to them, you're slaves to him. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. Remember, rules, all they can do is, is focus on the external, upon what we do. It never touches the heart. And Jesus is always about the heart. So he's pointing to each of us who work for somebody and saying, serve out of your wholehearted willingness to do so. Not because this person is worthy, because nobody that you work for is worthy. I would say the same thing to every single person who is on staff here at Lighthouse. I am not worthy of you submitting to by myself. But we do it. Because Christ modeled it for us. And we do it because he is worthy and he's called us to do it. And this isn't just for our workplace. This is for our homes. I don't want to submit to him. He's so stinking arrogant and selfish. Yeah. No, he's not worthy of you submitting. But do it anyway. Not because he is worthy, but because Christ is worthy and Christ has called you to do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to apologize to her. She, I, know I, I, I know I messed up, but honestly, she did too. She's not Lily White in this. And I don't want to forgive her until she's willing to forgive me. I don't want to apologize until she's willing to apologize. Yeah, you don't do it just to make sure that she does it. You do it regardless of whether or not she apologizes. You apologize because that is what Christ has called you to do as the lead servant of your household. This is what it means to follow him and to submit to him by submitting to those around us. We honor and serve him by the way we care for people. We authenticate and demonstrate our love for him in the way that we treat the people around us. This all comes back to love. I have lost my place. So obey them, not to win their favor, just when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do, whether it is as a slave or as a free person. And then what is truly revolutionary is that he then points to the very same masters, the masters who feel completely justified in using their slaves any way that they want. And he says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What do you mean the same way? The same way that they treat me? Yes, the same way that they treat you, with respect 
don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism in him. As Paul puts another place, there is neither in God's eyes, in God's economy, from a simply value standpoint, there is no difference between male and female, slave or free, Greek, Hebrew. We are all one. We are all unified. We all stand on a foundation of grace, not upon good works, so that nobody can boast, so that nobody can look down upon another and say, I'm more important to God than you. I mean, parents who have more than one kid, which one's the most important? Which one do you love the most? You see that sometimes we like one of them more than another, but when it comes to loving our kids, I'm not going to make a decision between the two. I love them both. They have my heart completely. And that's how our Father feels about us, and that's how our Father feels about those who are beyond the walls of this church. That's how our Father feels about the people in your schools that you rub shoulders with every week, that you sit next to in class. That's how he feels about them, and he's used you. He's, he's wrapped you up as a piece of the kingdom of heaven, as a, as a part of the church. He's given you his Holy Spirit to reside within you, and now he's sent you into your schools to go be the church there. That's how he feels about your coworkers that sit next to you in your cubicles that you run into when you go get coffee. And he's dressed you up to be in that specific industry, giving you some talent and some ability so that you can be there, so that you can rub shoulders with people that would never step foot in here. And they come face to face with the church when they come face to face with you. Can you imagine the impact it would make on our society, upon our schools, upon our workplaces, upon the places that we frequent, if we could just get, not only from our head, but in our heart, that God loves me, he is for me, and so now I get to show him how much I love him by the way I treat the people around me. And any leadership I have, any influence I have, any tools that I have are simply a gift that God has entrusted to me, not for my own good, but for the benefit of those around me, that I might use what he's given me to help ease the burden off of their shoulders and so somehow to win a few that they too would fall madly in love with Jesus. Could you imagine what your home life would be like? Maybe you live with people who aren't believers. And my prayer, my ardent prayer, is that at some point, whether early on or late, that they would come to bend a knee to Jesus Christ because they have seen, even though they didn't want to have anything to do with him, they've seen the impact it's had on your life. And in the end, they're willing to submit. You get to celebrate a, a person, Jim, who for over 80 years resisted God and then in the last day, embraced him as his Lord and Savior. And yesterday we got to celebrate the fact that he's out of pain. And I'm so grateful. But, but what I encouraged people there yesterday is the same thing I encourage us. May we live in such a way that people see how well we love and they, they are willing to entertain Jesus, not because they love organized religion, but because they see Jesus playing out in our life. They come face to face with him and they cannot reject that. But even if you live with some other believers, they're imperfect, just like you're imperfect, just like I'm imperfect. What would it look like if you this week said, God, would you help me to love the way you loved, sacrificially, as a servant, if I submitted myself 
to the people around me. Show me what that looks like because it's going to be hard. I'm not going to want to do it. I'm going to mess up, but God, would you help me to know what submission looks like? This morning, submission looked like when my wife said, go open the door so that we know that Grayson's not messing around in the bathroom. Even though I didn't feel like it was necessary because I didn't want to smell that, I did it. That's what submission looked like this morning for me. Sorry, that's probably a bad example, but whatever. That's all I got. I'm a work in progress. Submission for me sometimes looks like, you know what? I'm going to get up earlier so that I can get back, you know, get to the gym so I can get back rather than going later in the day when my wife has to carry the burden of my kids. Sometimes submission looks like I've got to stop working in order to be home and help her carry the weight of that. And that's the most loving thing I can do. Sometimes submission looks like I'm going to close my book, even though I am so fried right now, I simply need to choose to be present with my family. More sometimes it looks like I know I've had a long day, I've done a whole lot, but submission looks like I'm going to clean the dishes right now. don't want to, but I choose to. I don't have to, I choose to. May we love in that way. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to spend a couple of minutes responding. If you would like prayer for any reason, Pastor Jeff's in the back. I'm going to ask uh, John and Liz, if you're there, would you go on back as well? Fippers, can you come up here? If you guys need prayer for any reason, we're going to be available to pray. Um, If you just want to respond, that's fine. In a few moments, we're going to take an offering. And that is a way, if you've got prayer requests right now that we can be praying for, write them down, turn them in on the connection card. That's probably the best thing you can give. But now let's just respond to this reminder that he has loved us so much. Now we get to go be a reflection of that love to the people we come in contact with.